Our passage today is 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 1. I'll read verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The Apostle starts at the beginning of the chapter by saying, But the Spirit explicitly says. He has just told us in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, about the faith. He has summarized the gospel, especially in verse 16. After summarizing the true gospel, he has to contrast it with a false gospel. That's why he begins chapter 4 with, But the Spirit explicitly says. There are some people who will fall away from this true gospel. The Spirit explicitly says this. He mentions the Holy Spirit by name here, perhaps because he's speaking of what is happening in later times. And so this prophecy of what is happening in later times is not from Paul himself. It's from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has told Paul, and Paul has written it here, that we might benefit from it. The Holy Spirit of God Wrote these, uh, spoke these words and wrote these words here in our chapter, as well as throughout this letter and all the letters of the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit is behind all of this. So we ought to pay careful attention. These are not words of men. These are not man's speculations. These are the words of God, because the Spirit is behind these words. He explicitly teaches us the Spirit on this passage and on many subjects in the Bible, the Holy Spirit explicitly teaches us, clearly, openly teaches us. He's not saying it in a riddle, in a dark saying. He is not saying it in a cloudy vision. He is saying it explicitly. He's making it very, very clear. Some things in the Bible are clear, and some things are hard to understand. Second Peter 3 14 to 18, the Apostle Peter does say that some things are hard to understand, but not all things are hard to understand. In this case, we're dealing with that which is obvious and clear, self-evident, it's explicit. Explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. The later times that Paul has in mind here is our time. In fact, in the Bible, the later times, or the last hour, the last days, began with the first coming of Christ and ends with the second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, in Hebrews 1-2, he says that in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, or by his Son. By the Son of God, God spoke. Well, when did Christ come? He came in his first coming, in his incarnation, and then he will return at his second coming. This is the latter days, the later times that we have in, in view here. Also, to support this view, 1 John 2, 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. 
And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. The last hour, the, the later times, is our period. The time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. In this period, he makes it clear that some will fall away from the faith. Not all, but some. Some people will fall away. They will not embrace the faith anymore. They, may at, they, they will have, in this case, professed the faith, and this is what he means. When he says that some will fall away from the faith, he doesn't mean that they had true faith, true forgiveness of sins, true salvation, and then lost it all, gave it all up, that it was robbed or taken away from them. He doesn't mean it that way. What he means is that they had a professed faith, they had a spoken faith, but they did not have a real faith. They did not have a faith that endured until the end. We know that this is possible from Matthew 13, 1 to 23. Matthew 13, 1 to 23, and Luke 4, uh, Luke 4, and verses 5 to 11. Uh, I'm sorry, Luke 8, verses 5 to 11. There, he says that we have the parable of the sower and the seeds, where in one case, they heard the word and they received it, they immediately received it with joy, and then they fall away. When afflictions and persecutions come because of the word, they fall away. Well, in that case, only the fourth soil of the, that parable of Matthew 13, 1-23, only that fourth soil is the soil that produced fruit. They endured until the end. The other three kinds of soil did not produce fruit. They produced apparent fruit, but not real fruit. And so, falling away from the faith means professing it and then giving it up, walking away from it in one way or another. Well, what causes them to do so? Chapter 4, verse 1 says that they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They're paying attention. Everybody pays attention to something, but they're paying attention to the wrong things. They're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Instead of listening to the right sources, the apostles, and the true apostolic teaching, the truth, the faith, they are paying attention to false prophets. This is why John also said in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he says later in verses 4 to 6, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We all pay attention to one source or another. The real question is, are we paying attention to the right source? to the true source from the Bible, the apostolic teaching, the sound faith that they preached in the gospel. In this case, they're not. And if we're not paying attention to the, the apostles who speak from the Holy Spirit, we're listening to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We're either listening to the voice of Christ through His apostles or we're listening to the voice of the devil 
through his demons and false prophets, false teachers. They are here deceitful spirits. They don't often openly and straightforwardly tell you that they're telling you a lie. They are deceitful. They're crafty, just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. They're also called here doctrines of demons. Everybody has teachings or doctrines, instructions. Everybody has advice and counsel. The Bible summarizes advice, counsel, teaching, instruction as doctrines. Whether it's theological or moral, there are doctrines, teachings. Well, in this case, they're not coming from God, but coming from demons. Demons who are influencing and who inhabit, possess false teachers. Well, what is so bad and what is it that they are teaching that it is devilish? First, he'll tell us their means, the way that they do it, and then what they do. Verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The way that they do this, or how they're able to do this, without any remorse, without any guilt, without any desire to repent of sin, they have here hypocritical lies. They are hypocritical liars. They themselves are not true believers. They lie. They are hypocrites. They put on a show, and they say one thing, but they actually do another. And they are seared. When he says they're seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, a branding iron used on cattle permanently fixes a brand, some kind of mark, on the cattle. And once it's there, it's not to be removed. It's not to be changed. Their conscience is so seared, it is so fixed, that they don't have any impulse of guilt, any desire to repent. They're not sorrowful. They don't feel guilty at all. And they brazenly and, and straightforwardly practice their sin. And they justify it. And their means, again, is to be a hypocritical liar. This is really bad. He's describing false teachers. He's describing people who have no guilt, no shame, and they follow the devil. They have fallen away from the faith, even though they may say they profess the faith. Verse 3. What is it that they're teaching? These men who are those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Forbidding marriage. Prohibiting marriage. There were people in the first centuries, after the time, during the time and after the time of the apostles who were forbidding marriage. They actually said and taught that it is good and right for men to remain single for the rest of their life and women to remain single for the rest of their life. Don't get married and don't have children. And in some cases they would say that women are of an inferior uh, place and that they need to be reborn into the world as men before they can obtain eternal life. They forbid marriage. But forbidding marriage in the, the early church has been mirrored and repeated throughout the centuries. And it's even a problem today. There are people who forbid marriage. They downplay marriage. They disparage marriage. They denigrate it. 
and relegate it to something that is old-fashioned, traditional, you're too conservative, you're a purist. They'll say things like that about people who want to get married. When in, in fact, in the Bible, from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 onward, marriage is good. It is established by God and ordained by God so that we might properly relate together as husband and wife and bear children and raise the children to know the Lord and prosper in the earth. This is the way marriage should be and marriage should be promoted. But these people were not doing so. They prohibited marriage. They downplayed and disparaged marriage as being sin and evil and not good for you. The other false teaching is that they taught abstinence from foods. Abstinence from foods. Now, abstinence from foods is taken in a few ways, can be taken in a few ways. One, that they were saying, do not eat meat. Do not eat meat at all. Meat eating is evil. It's wrong. It's unethical. Don't eat meat. Others would say, no, you have to keep the dietary laws, otherwise you cannot be saved. If you don't keep the Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 dietary laws, then you will not be saved. You show that you're not saved. These false teachers are making these kinds of things conditions of salvation, conditions to obtain salvation, or evidences of salvation. They're doing one or both of these in this false teaching. And in doing so, they're undermining the gospel. This is why it's dangerous, because they make it a condition of salvation or an evidence of salvation, and thereby they undermine the gospel. They turn away from the faith. They fall away. Well, then the apostle in verse 3 and 3 to 5 further clarifies and explains why this ought not to be the case. Now, what he says about foods in the subsequent passage is also in some sense applicable to marriage, though he focuses on foods. He says in verse 3, Foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God has created foods, and we might also say, by expansion, we know from Genesis chapter 1, that he not only created the foods in Genesis 1, but he also created marriage in Genesis 1. And Genesis 1.31 says, And behold, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He saw everything, and it was good. So what God has created should be acknowledged as coming from the Creator, and then we should gratefully, thankfully, share in this. We should be grateful and share in these things. And especially, he means here, by those who believe and know the truth. If we have any idea of what the truth is, and we embrace it, we say we do, if we believe and know the truth, that is the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the truth about Christ and salvation, and the means of forgiveness of sins in Christ, if we know all this, then especially we ought to know better than to be misled and follow into that kind of false teaching. Verse 4, he reiterates, For everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good in its proper place, the implication. Everything that God intended to be used in His creation is good. And nothing is to be rejected 
if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. Why reject anything that God has created for our good? It is good and it is for our benefit. Yet, it's not enough just to receive it, but we ought to receive it with gratitude, with thankfulness, as he mentioned in verses uh, 3 and 4. With gratitude. If we don't receive the gifts of God in gratitude, we're not acknowledging their true purpose. We have to acknowledge the true purpose of the things that God has created. And we do this when we show gratitude. When we show gratitude, we are giving back to God the praise due Him and acknowledging the purpose for which He gave us these things. Be grateful. And then five. For it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. It is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God, which he's already implied in verses 3 and 4, the Word of God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and other places such as Genesis 9, 1 to 7, when he gave permission to eat meats. In Genesis 9, 1 to 7. In this way, the Word of God itself declares that which is good and that which is evil, that which we should do and that which we shouldn't do. The Word of God is that which sanctifies it, set, separates it, so that we understand the true purpose and meaning of the things given to us. The Word of God, the revelation of God, is necessary so that we have a correct interpretation of the things that we enjoy for our well-being. Not only is it the Word of God, but it's also prayer. This is why prayer is offered before and even according to Deuteronomy 8.10, after meals. Prayer is offered in order to acknowledge who God is and what He has done for our benefit. And this is the way, this is the time that we show our gratitude. We show it in prayer. This is the way in which this true gospel and these true things that God has given to us to enjoy marriage and foods and other things whenever we have a doubt whenever we have a question we ought to acknowledge what the word of God says and our response to that word by our prayers that's the way in which we ought to deal with whatever we encounter the word of God and prayer that will solve all the problems the Bible expects us to consult the Bible and to pray about what we see in the Bible because it is sufficient. It is sufficient for our life and godliness. This is what we ought to do. Now, a few points uh, or lessons we can learn from these first five verses. One, we have, to, we have to acknowledge that when we read the words of the Apostle Paul, we are reading the words of the Holy Spirit. There are many people today who denigrate and dismiss Paul as not being a true apostle, not being authoritative, and not even having the correct interpretation of Scripture. Paul was deficient and even blind and weak and wrong in his interpretation of the Old Testament. Paul did not interpret the Old Testament correctly. That's, and then also another thing that they do, people do, is they pit Paul against Jesus. They say, Paul taught one thing and Jesus taught another. 
we can't do that. We cannot say that about Paul and the Old Testament or Paul and Jesus. Paul spoke with the authority of Christ and of the Holy Spirit by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He himself uh, acknowledges that he is writing according to the Holy Spirit. In, for example, chapter 4, verse 9, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Or chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. And chapter 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And in chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1, Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. He knows that he's an apostle because God commanded him to be an apostle. He knows that he is self-evident of his apostleship and his own inspiration. An example of his own inspiration is in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. When they, the Thessalonians, first heard the message, they took it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. It was indeed the word of God that Paul preached, and then he wrote. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, and this is why we cannot pit Jesus against Paul, because Jesus gave Paul the authority, the commandments, the words to write. And also chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He knows that he is writing the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 27. 527. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. When he says, I adjure you, an adjuration is that which you put something or someone under an oath. You, You say... To somebody else, I'm I'm making you swear that you're going to read this letter to all the brethren. Well, why would it be so important to be read to all the brethren? Because it's Scripture. It's the Word of God. That's why he would say that it's serious and you need to read it to one another. Another thing, another lesson we can learn from 1 Timothy 4 is that whenever people listen to false doctrine, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they realize it or not, whether they admit it or not, when they listen to false doctrine, they're listening to the devil. They're listening to the devil. There are only two voices, two voices of origin. Either we're listening to God or we're listening to Satan. It's only one or the other. It's not a matter of uh, admixture of the two. We're either listening to the truth or we're listening 
to falsehoods. This is, again, something people don't like to acknowledge. Today, there are many people who like to say that, that they can pick and choose. They can pick and choose and they can have some kind of mixture between that which is true and false and their Christian life will be just fine. It's okay to imbibe a little bit that's wrong or a little off the beaten path. You don't have to be strict about everything. You don't have to have uh, the, the straight and narrow way about everything. We can follow w one and then imbibe and, and mix some things about the other ways and put them together. Well, it doesn't give us room for that. If we're listening, pay, if we're paying attention to that which is contrary to the faith, it is coming from deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There's only one way or another. Then verse 2. Verse 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. The deceitful spirits and then the means that the false teachers use are the means of hypocrisy and lies. Hypocritical liars. This is what they are. Or lying hypocrites, however we want to say it. The people doing this are doing it deliberately, intentionally. They are deceitful. They are lying spirits. They are hypocrites. They know that what they say but with their mouth is not really what they believe in their hearts. What they say with their mouth is not the way that they live. They know that. So they are hypocrites and they are liars. Often, too often, we put false teachers, and I'm specifically and primarily talking about the false teachers at this point, we constantly, frequently put them in the category, well, they're not so bad, or they don't really mean it. Well, that's just unintentional. As though they, they haven't thought about it. As though they haven't been studying or preparing to say what they're about to say in the pulpit. Sure, they've been thinking about it. And if they've been thinking about it, and they've been reading, reading some of the Bible and some, some of other sources, and consulting other people on the issues, surely they are deliberately saying what they're saying from the pulpit. And so we have to identify them if they're speaking falsehood, they are hypocritical liars. And verse 3, another point to make. Often we hear that we ought to have some points of theology that are non-negotiable and others that are negotiable. Non-negotiable and negotiable. Or we should have three tiers of theology. Three tiers of theology. The first tier, that which is foundational, basic, orthodox. Second tier, that may divide us as uh, denominations, as Christians in denominations. And a third tier, where we can disagree, uh, agree to disagree agreeably on some things that we'll never really figure out for sure, such as the, when Christ returns and, and doctrines on eschatology. We can't agree, so even within denominations there is room to disagree, and all is well. There's no need to worry and be anxious about any of this, no need to argue, no need to debate. Three-tiered theology. Uh, other people will say some things are essential and other things are non-essential. Essential, non-essential. Well, according to 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, he mentioned marriage and foods. Since when has anyone called somebody 
a false teacher or a heretic, an unbeliever, a non-Christian, satanic, a son of the devil, for prohibiting marriage and teaching unlawful distinctions on food. Paul just did. Paul just did. Yes, there, there is theological heresy, denial of the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and many other doctrines. There are theological heresies, but he hasn't mentioned any theological heresies in this passage. He's only mentioned the food or the ethical, the moral heresies right here. That's what he's mentioned. We need to recover an idea that moral heresy is heresy. It is also destructive. It's demonic, as he says here. An example of this would be 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is an example of the word heresy being used for morality or immorality. Immorality or any kind of unethical conduct. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose, arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, what is it that they are doing by, and denying the master? If you have read this lately, you'll notice in verses 2 to 22, for the rest of the chapter, he does not men mention a single explicit theological doctrine. He doesn't mention the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection. He doesn't mention anything like that. He mentions ethical or moral sins. Verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. You get the point? He's talking about moral heresies when he calls it destructive heresies. Because one cannot practice sensuality, and in this case, one cannot be a sodomite, a homosexual, and other sins are later mentioned. Adultery is mentioned in verse 14. When he's mentioning these sins, he's saying that these people are in the category of a heretic, a destructive heretic. Not a believer, but an unbeliever. Somebody who might profess the faith, but actually has fallen away from the faith. He's not a true disciple. This is the kind of doctrine the Bible teaches, that we ought to be sound in our theology and sound in our morality. And if we deviate in any way, then we are not embracing the true gospel. And we are heretics if we deny the true gospel, either theologically or morally. One more point on the moral 
is in First Timothy chapter one, First Timothy one, verse eight. First Timothy one eight. Here too, a list of moral sins and its relationship to the gospel. Verse eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. All of the sins that he mentioned are contrary to sound teaching, and the sound teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. If anybody says that he holds to the gospel and yet is lawless, he's not holding to the true gospel. He's a false believer. If he's saying he holds to the true gospel and is rebellious, then he's not holding to the true gospel. It's a false believer. If he's ungodly, if he's a sinner, unholy, profane, a, a, a killer of father and mother, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. These are moral sins that make one live contrary to the gospel and therefore they are unbelievers. Then, lastly, the, the last point to make in 1 Timothy 4 is found in verses 3 to 5. We need to recover the need to be consulting the Bible for everything. Consulting the Bible for everything. Because whatever we embrace, whatever we believe, or whatever we obey, it has to be in accordance with Scripture. Because it's supposed to be obeyed by those who believe and know the truth. Believe and know the truth. And verse 5, that it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. If our doctrines, our practices are not in conformity to Scripture, then we are believing contrary to Scripture. How can we say that we're all right with God and our practices and beliefs are okay with God when they're contrary to the Word of God? They cannot be contrary to the Word of God, but they need to be prayerfully based on the Word of God. Prayerfully based on the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3 explains that the Bible is sufficient, adequate for our Christian life. 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible is adequate to equip us in every good work. It's adequate or sufficient to equip us. It's not exhaustive and it's not going to tell us about everything that we might want to know and do in life, just generally speaking. It's not going to tell us what kinds of clothing to wear day by day. It's not going to tell us what color to wear day by day. But that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible will tell us 
what we need to know for life and godliness, for our Christian life, to know God and how to live righteously before God. In that way, the Bible is adequate and sufficient to guide our life. So in that way, we ought not to be dependent on our own wisdom or the wisdom of man to guide us. We ought to go to the Bible to guide us because it is sufficient, it's adequate, and he has given to us, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's found in the Bible and it's found by means of prayer because we possess the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. By these means, we can know what pleases God and what is and is not in accordance with the gospel.